when people that you know, you work with, you love start dying giving birth, it just, it rocks your world. Hi, and welcome back to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And we're the co-founders of Chief, the most powerful community of senior executive women. On this podcast, we challenge preconceived notions of leadership and how underrepresented communities, particularly women and women of color, are specifically impacted. This week, we discuss Black maternal health and how it impacts the C-suite pipeline. And I am extremely excited to discuss this with Allison Felix. She is not only the most decorated American track and field Olympian of all time, with a total of 30 medals in her career. Oh, yeah, Alison Felix. What a privilege for all of us to be here in this stadium. But she's also a huge maternal health advocate, a journey that she began unwittingly when she herself became pregnant and decided to walk away from Nike to fight for maternal protection. We spoke to Alison about this fight with Nike that inspired her to become a founder and now CEO of Seish her very own sneaker company made for women. As a mom of two, I can tell you that being pregnant is the second most vulnerable time of your career. When you're in a patriarchal system, that usually punishes mothers. The first most vulnerable time is when I became a mom and Allison deciding to take a stand against one of the biggest companies in the world during this specific moment is inspiring, awe-inducing, and incredibly powerful. Pregnancy-related deaths for Black mothers are over three times higher than they are for white women, and more than 80% are preventable. This fatal disparity is due to variations in quality healthcare, underlying chronic conditions, and structural racism. We discuss all of this and her journey as a maternal advocate, an entrepreneur, and as a mother. Just a few titles to add to this amazing woman's accomplishments. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. It's good to see you again. Same. It's been quite some time. (laughs) I know. I know. The first time and last time I met with you, we were at that event in California and everybody was giving their background and what made them into like the leaders that they were. And I was like, oh man, I really want to talk. Like sports is such a big part of the leader I became. But like with you in the room, there's no way I could talk about my like high school basketball experience. You absolutely (laughs) could. (laughs) I love to hear like how that is a part of so many people who go into leadership. Like that's like a point that makes them really strong. And so I think it's really cool. This feels a little minor league. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us, Allison. Oh, thank you for having me. You are many things. You're an Olympian. You're a co-founder. You're a maternal health advocate. And there's so much that I'm really excited to talk about, and I can't wait to dive into it all. But I have to imagine that something that's really top of mind and probably top of heart for you is maternal health particularly given the recent death of your friend and fellow athlete, Tori Bowie. And you shared the news on your Instagram with a photo of the team winning the relay race in Rio de Janeiro. And you wrote, three of us tried to give birth. Two of us experienced near-death complications. And one of us died. And we have to and will do more. And I'm sure you're still processing so much of this. But I'd love to maybe start, if you could just tell us more about Tori and what she was like as a friend and as an athlete. 
Yeah, Tori had just a a very sweet spirit. She was from Mississippi and just super country and super funny. I just really enjoyed whenever we got to be on relays together. We Often she would run the anchor leg and I would run second leg. And it was just a lot of fun to be around her. And I think everyone really shared that. She had such a joy about her and also just a sense of ease. I think a lot of times we would be in these very pressure-filled situations and she wouldn't take it so serious. And it was just very refreshing to see. But it was heartbreaking to learn that she died during childbirth. And I think it just is another awakening of just understanding, you know, what an enormous problem that this is in the United States and that it's been a growing problem. You've always been an advocate in this space in particular. So as you were going through your own pregnancy journey, you had a a lot of publicity around your contract with Nike and how that impacted you. How has this experience changed some of your approach to advocacy as you think about this broader conversation? I had my first experience with maternal health, giving birth to my daughter and the traumatic experience that was. And then for this to happen to Tori. And and that picture on my Instagram was of our four-by-one in in Rio and our other teammate, Tiana. She gave birth at 26 weeks. And I think just understanding that three Olympians who are healthy and take care of their body had this issue, it really shows that it does not discriminate and that women of color are at a greater risk for it. And so I think it makes it just so much more personal. You know, I think sometimes we hear these statistics and these things and it feels very far away. And when people that you know, you work with, you love start dying, giving birth, it just, it rocks your world. And so it just motivates me to do even more. It motivates me to talk more about policy change and about awareness and all these things that we can do. Because I think the most shocking thing to me is that these complications and that these deaths, I think it's something like 60% are preventable. We have to do better. Yeah. If you're comfortable, would you? Mind sharing us a little bit more about your own birth journey and the complications that you're referencing and the pregnancy discrimination that you experienced in particular? Yeah. So my birth experience, I had a really healthy pregnancy, what I thought was. I knew I still wanted to compete. And so I was training and I was in the pool and running and doing all these things. And I felt really strong and great. And then it was at 32 weeks that I went to the doctor for just a routine appointment And I found out first that I was spilling protein, and then I was sent over for further monitoring. And when I got to the hospital and I was admitted, I learned that I had a severe case of preeclampsia. And I just never imagined that I would be in that scenario. I went from having this idea of birthing in a birth center and, you know, having a natural birth to being told that my life in my baby's life was in jeopardy. And it was just a very, very scary situation. It got worse very quickly and I was rushed in to have an emergency C-section. And I think the experience just opened my eyes. My daughter, she was born two months early. And so after being in the NICU, I'm so grateful that my family, we were able to all come home together. But I think so often that's not the case. Mothers don't survive to raise their children. And 
that experience just made me want to do more and figure out, you know, at that point in time, it was very new to me, you know, just even understanding the issue. And so saying like, okay, well, how can I be a part of a solution? How can I come alongside organizations who are already doing good, important work in this space and join in? So what does that advocacy work look like for you? The awareness that you've already driven to this issue is phenomenal. And there are many of us, myself included, who have issues that we would want to be advocates for. And sometimes we just don't know where to begin. Absolutely. And that's how it started for me. I didn't know where to even begin. It started with learning about the organizations. And there's a lot of great organizations out there. March of Dimes is one of them. They do incredible work. There's Black Mamas Alliance. So there's a lot of organizations who, they're not new to this. You know, this has been an issue for so long. And so they've been here. Raising awareness is huge, you know, sharing and amplifying other stories. So that's been big. I've been able to do a campaign with the CDC, just really sharing my own story and also other women who have been through something similar. I've been able to testify before Congress. It's such an overwhelming problem. It can feel like a lot to start, but I think donating to some of these organizations is huge. And being a part of the policy change, there is the Momnibus Act that is out and has been passed in some states, but really just supporting that because those acts is really about more research being done, um, investing in the problem, implicit bias training for medical professionals, and really just leaning into all of that good work. Yeah. I say this with Chief a lot, where people want us to be like a broader activist organization. But I always say that there are so many great organizations that have experience and legacy in these spaces. They have done this for years, and that's not what Chief's forte is. So Chief really needs to focus on what it does best and ultimately create partnerships and be able to point people to those amazing organizations that, as you said, are already doing great work. So I want to talk about that singular moment where you almost unwittingly became an advocate for maternal rights, which is, of course, the New York Times op-ed piece that you wrote talking about your decision to walk away from your contract with Nike. That was a very public stance in support of pregnant athletes, while also an incredibly risky move for your career. It seems in hindsight, you know, that this was the right decision where it has allowed you to launch your advocacy work. But in that moment, that's just got to be really scary and tough to make a decision to make that stance. I'd love to know what was going through your mind at that time and how you made that call. Yeah, I was absolutely terrified. I think it was just so far from what I'm comfortable with. I'm kind of a people pleaser and I don't want to rock the boat. And I think at Nike, I had for almost a decade just really focused on being a great partner and done what I was supposed to do, you know, win medals and run fast. And so when it came time for these really real life moments, I I was really scared. I mean, it's this massive company. And I also knew that I still wanted to compete. But I think what came down to what I was thinking was it was about my daughter. And I think because that ordeal where I was fighting for maternal protections, it lasted such a long time. It actually overlapped with me becoming a mother and giving birth. And I really think that that was kind of the changing point for me because it shifted the mindset and was really about 
you know, the, this world that my daughter is going to grow up in and the fight that she's going to have. Because, you know, I was asking for maternal protections, which just means that in track and field contracts, they're performance-based. And so you go to the Olympics, you go to world championships, you get a bonus. But if you don't, you get a reduction. If you have a baby during that time, there's nothing in place to protect you from a salary reduction. So what was happening in the sport is that women were being reduced and reduced and pushed out of the sport. And so to think that they weren't ready to offer maternal protections to all their female athletes, it just seemed absurd. Like it just seemed like something that needed to happen. And so I don't think I ever got to a point where it was like, okay, this feels good. I'm, I'm going to speak out. But it was more so just I deeply believed in it. And I assumed there was going to be consequences. And I didn't know what was on the other side of that. But I just knew it was something I was feeling pulled to do. Yeah. So I have a super tactical question. But writing a piece like that, putting a statement that is so heavy out there, I just, I have to ask what that process was like for you because words are so important. And I have a tendency to overthink all of my communications, and none have been nearly as weighty as your New York Times piece about maternal rights. So I can only imagine you're just going through iterations and really trying to find those perfect words. Absolutely. There was so much back and forth. And so not only were there tons of tons of drafts, you know, just (laughs) wanting to make sure that I said what I was trying to express in the right way. But also, I think there was so much doubt. I think at times I was like, is this the right thing to do? Like, do I just want to not do this? (laughs) Just feeling that fear throughout the whole process, I think that it made it even more of a struggle. But it was definitely a team effort with my brother, Wes, who I work with and who has empowered me and just been in the fight with me. He is my manager and had represented me during that time. And so it was amazing that we were bouncing these drafts off of each other and and making sure that it really felt that the feeling, you know, people would be able to understand. Yeah, yeah. And it's great that you had family to be able to go on that journey with somebody that like you could really trust because that's definitely a vulnerable moment that you're in and making sure that, you know, the people that are helping you craft those words are people that you know are there for you. I mean, as a CEO, it can be really hard sometimes to know whose opinions to trust and who whose matter. And if they're family, it must be easier in some respects to know that they're always on your side. Absolutely. I think it was really special to be able to do it together because Wes had seen all those difficult moments. You know, he saw the moments where I was training and hiding my pregnancy. Like he saw the pain. And I I think in a normal working relationship, you know, you're not really privy to all those details. But I think going through the experience with someone who, first of all, loved me unconditionally And also knew and was aligned. He just felt not only as his client, but as his sister, like you deserve so much more than this. Yeah. Well, that that partnership with your brother has obviously sustained into your next phase as well. And he is now the co-founder with you of Seish. And the origin story of that is just really remarkable. You left Nike and were without a sneaker sponsor. You had the Tokyo Olympics coming up. Instead of finding another sneaker sponsor, you went to a place of, I'm going to 
design my own, <laughs> which is amazing. Can you walk us through that decision as well? Because that's not most people's reactions and decisions when faced with, well, then I'm just going to build it myself. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when we first started out, that wasn't ours either. We were looking for other companies, <laughs> we were looking for other companies as well and weren't finding it. You know, and I think for me, that became really defeating, you know, to know that, you know, gosh, I'm at this place in my career. I've been to four Olympic Games. I'm a six-time Olympic champion, and I cannot find a footwear sponsor. And whether that's, I think I was heavily Nike branded, you know, I'm at a certain place in my career. And so I think there's these different reasons that came about, but that's where I found myself. And I was just venting to Wes, you know, not even talking to him, you know, as a manager, but just as my big brother, telling him, like, I am tired. Like, I feel like I'm begging these companies to see my value. And it just, it feels so horrible. And that's when he was like, I think that we should do this ourselves. And when he first said it, I was like, okay, sure. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, we'll do it ourselves. We'll build shoes. But the longer that I sat with it, it was like, no, you're absolutely right. Like, we can do this. Like, we can be the ones to be change makers instead of, relying on someone else. And so I think what we thought originally we were doing was, okay, cool, we'll create shoes that I can wear in the Olympics. And, you know, maybe other women would want to support that. But what we learned is that shoes are not made for women, tennis shoes. They're made off of a lass, which is a mold of a foot. And it's been the mold of a man's foot to make women's sneakers. And when I learned that, I was just like, that's crazy. Like there are actual differences between men's and women's feet. And we shouldn't be an afterthought, even when it comes to product. And so that's what we do. But we we feel like it's a much deeper thing than just shoes. You know, I, I love when I see women wearing the shoes and it's the signal that you are a change maker, that you stand with women. And I just love the stories of people connecting with that mission and saying that they they see other women and they believe that women deserve better and they want to put that into the world. Yeah. It is crazy to me how many products are actually built with the male form in mind, like office chairs and seatbelts and... A lot of medicine. Yeah. Oh, gosh. If there is even medicine for women's health issues that exist at all. <laughs> it's a long list of things. <laughs> I know. I know. That must be why I'm such a bad runner is that it's because of the shoes. <laughs> Definitely the shoes. We'll, we'll change that all around. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how it felt winning two Olympic medals while wearing the shoes that you designed and built. Oh, man. It was, it's truly the highlight of of my career, I feel like. I mean, there was so much adversity, even just making that team. But then to do it, and honestly, for the first time in Tokyo, you know, showing up to that Olympics, it was the first time that I felt like it was about more than just running. You know, every other time it's been hyper-focused on success versus failure, and success is so clear that that's only a gold medal, and that's the way that it's defined. And in this moment, I felt like I was a representation for women and for mothers and, and really for anybody who had been told that their story was over. And to be able to do that and know that my daughter was watching as well, it just, it was such a beautiful kind of full circle moment. Does that feel freeing or does that actually feel like more pressure? In that moment, it definitely felt freeing. I think, you know, as an athlete, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of weight. And I think 
to be able to say like, wow, I've made it here. And it sounds cliche, but it's absolutely true. It's like, wow, I feel like I've already won. Like I, I made it here and I'm doing it. As I move forward, I think I do carry the weight that like, I really want to make change. Like I really want to have impact. And, and sometimes that can feel heavy. But, you know, I think back to my my motivation and my reasons and my why, and that always carries me forward. As somebody who success was so clear, like a gold medal or a first place finish or a new record, especially as you go into this next phase of building a business, being an advocate where like success is a little bit murkier. Has it been an easy transition or is that something that is harder to work through as you think about what does success look like in this next phase? Yeah, it's definitely a shift. I mean, I think that clear cut definition of success is only a gold medal is not the most healthy thing. (laughs) I definitely had to do some work, you know, while I was still actively competing and just in being that, you know, my worth is not tied to the outcome of a race. And I think it's similar in business as well as I'm finding my way is that I, I don't define success just by how many shoes we sell. You know, like that's not what I'm trying to do. For me right now at this point in life, success is impact. And if we can have impact, if we can create change, you know, within the industry and, and women feel something and our sales, like the company doesn't work out, then that's okay. Like to me, that's successful. But if I were to just go in and say, you know, it's it's just a clear cut numbers game, that's not what I'm trying to put into the world. Yeah. Are there other aspects that, you know, you had to really learn as an athlete that you've brought over with you as you've stepped into a new definition of leadership as a co-founder of a business? What are some of those key things that have really helped you in this next phase? Yeah, I think what I found most is that like in this new world, like things are called different things, (laughs) but (laughs) the skill set is still similar. You know, I think whether it's how to overcome adversity or just perseverance or as an athlete, like you're down and out a million times, like that doesn't phase you. It's just, it's a part of it. And so I think bringing that to this phase of life and not being shifted by whether it's someone not understanding what you're doing or not believing in you or just the bumps in the road, just knowing that you got to keep going. And I think another big part is just working with other people's. I've been on a number of you know, very elite teams. And I've worked with a lot of different people from different backgrounds. And I think coming together for that common goal, it really pushes you. And I think at our company, you know, we're really motivated by that core purpose of, you know, women deserving better. And it can be hard to work with different people. But I think that experience that I've had, it has really benefited me. And to me, it's also really refreshing to be able to work with a diverse group of people on a daily basis versus as an athlete. There is a team, but for the most part on my day to day, it it can feel more isolating. I often reflect on my own leadership journey. And one of the things that I think is somewhat of a negative consequence of coming out of sports is for myself as a leader has been, I was also in team sports. So like for me, it is participating together. Like sports is a very deep, trusted, like in it with you relationship. And as you build a business and as there's more people in that business, you often have to just trust and let other people go and do things on their own. And like you wanting to participate actually 
looks like non-trust where for me it's like no I just want to do the wind sprints with you like (laughs) that's how I know how to like build camaraderie are there things that have actually had to shift for you in that way as you've taken on your own new leadership role yeah I mean that totally resonates with me also (laughs) (laughs) I think where I find myself struggling most is coming from this sport where it ultimately was just me you know I mean there's a team effort Tons of people poured into me, but I could say at the end of the day, like, this one's on me. You know, I just, or whether it's the passion, the drive, like, that was so intense. But coming into the business world, you know, not everyone is going to have that level of intensity. They're not going to maybe have that same approach as you. And just understanding that not everyone is the same. And I think in sport, it was like, okay, it was a good thing. You know, it's like hyper-focused and you never turn it off. And then it's like, okay, well, I need more balance and I need to like listen and and just really bring the team together in a different way. So I think that's been something that I've definitely had a lot of learnings around. Yeah. Any tips for our listeners on some of the things that you found as best practices for? We have a lot of very type A listeners, I'm sure, that are also like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I need to bring others along with me that might not be as intense. Any like best practices that you have there? Yeah, I think what's really helping me now is just knowing, and I think this is something that it's not groundbreaking. We all know it, but that everyone is an expert in their area. And sometimes we have to fully trust that someone else is going to do their job. They're going to maybe approach it in a different way, but being able to respect that. And I think that that's something, you know, for me, wanting to have my hands in everything and just saying like, okay, let me take a step back and let me let you do your thing. And, you know, it's hard, but I think it's always good to have a reminder of that. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm sure there have been, with any founding journey of a new business, I always believe it's never as great as it seems. It's never as bad as it seems. There's always ups and downs. And I'm just curious, like, would love to hear some of those early challenges that you faced as a first-time founder What are the things that really kept you going with such an important mission behind you? And just curious how you think about that journey. Yeah. Stepping away from track and into this has been really just amazing to have something challenging me in this way. I think some of the challenges that I found just right away that I was thrown into, just raising. I think that's so hard. And I had always heard it was hard. And I heard the statistics about the amount of money that goes to women and the even smaller amount that goes to women of color. But I think being in the real life pitches (laughs) and, you know, explaining what we are building and to be in a, a room of men and for them to say like, oh, well, you know, I'll let my daughter try the shoes. And it just seems like Wow, is that is that the best we can do? We're going to let this decision be up to your 12-year-old daughter, you know, and I just I feel like it was a lot of moments like that where I just didn't feel seen and it was challenging and just hard. And I I think a lot of women experience those feelings and in challenges. And so I think that was one of the big ones is just pitching and, you know, being told no and and the motivation was just you know, I deeply believe in this. And I I think that it needs to exist. I think it doesn't exist in the world. And I think we're doing something special here. And I think it's hard when you're trying to kind of create something that 
hasn't existed. And I'm sure, you know, all <laughs> you could give me all the, the gems on that, but just staying motivated through it. Oh, I feel you deeply. There was definitely the, I'm going to bring my wife to this pitch. And yeah. <laughs> like, okay, there's, there's no one on your team, you know, maybe like a woman here at the table who is in a position of power who we could you know, discuss. So it's it's frustrating. For sure. So obviously in those moments in particular, fundraising, you are often the Black woman in a room full of white men. And in the broader context of business, that is so unfortunately often the case. What does that feel like for you being like the only in so many of those rooms? And how have you navigated that outside of like the frustration that we often find ourselves in fundraising with several no's and not understanding your vision. Yeah, I think, you know, it's uncomfortable. I think in so many settings, I've been the only Black woman or the only Black student, you know, going to predominantly white schools or whatever it might be. And so I think I'm very comfortable in those uncomfortable situations, if that makes sense. I've, I've had to do it quite often and trying to show up and be unapologetically me. And so not conforming to any type of system of what I should be. And I think it's sometimes it's hard because you feel like, well, they don't want me to be me, but I need to. And then I think the other side of it is having really great mentors, having people who have been there, who have done it, who can support me and help me navigate this whole new world. Like it's a whole new industry for me. And so I think it's really important to have that community as I'm moving forward. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the best parts of building your own business, though, is that you can also be the change that you want to see in the private sector and like the policies that you wish all companies had, you can actually put them in place in your own company. So I'd love to talk a little bit about pregnancy leave policies and and how you support. What has been really important to you as you've built, say, around the maternal health policies, the leave policies that you wanted to put in place to bring your advocacy to life within your own company? Yeah, absolutely. I think being a small company, it allowed us to really listen to the team early on and just really even chat about some of these things as we're forming our policies. So we did that. We just came together and we said like, well, what would an amazing policy look like for you? Like what would make you feel like you could be yourself, that you could come back to the work that you love in the way that you want to? And so we came up with four months with a month of hybrid offering pre and postpartum services and mental health resources and just allowing women to take the time to transition as they see fit. I even feel like I, I want to do more. You know, we don't have all of the resources to be able to do that. But I think as we grow, this is something that we're committed to and, and committed to continuing to listen and to offer something that women can really feel good about. If you had to ask that you could send to other big companies around policies you wish that would change, what do you think is the biggest thing that you would hope every company implements for its employees? Family leave with mental health services is huge. I mean, like a real great amount of time where you don't feel the need to rush back, that we don't feel the need that you are still trying to, you know, come to grips and terms with being a parent. And so at the same time, I understand that that's hard. You know, I understand that it's difficult to not have your employees 
for that amount of time. And so I think it's really listening to what makes women feel seen and heard and connected to their work while they're away and what level they're comfortable with. But I think it's just better leave policies. Mm. For sure. And I think it's so important to also connect some of this advocacy and some of these policies, particularly around like Black maternal health with the larger business picture and how this can actually, it's not just the right thing to do, but it's actually good for business as well. There's only 5% of C-suite leaders who identify as Black women. So how do you think about that connection of supporting Black parents through pregnancy and what that can actually do to help build the C-suite pipeline. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing in supporting Black women giving birth and families is that they're alive, you know, that they're alive to, to be able to work and to be in these businesses. So I think that's huge. Um, I think that just the education piece of it is enormous. And I would love to see that tied into whether it's insurance or the healthcare system in some way. Like in my situation, when I found out I had preeclampsia, I didn't even know to the extent of like what that meant, you know, and at that point it's too late, you know, it's an emergency and there's no time for someone to educate you. But I would love to see a piece of this around that because I think, you know, not only just women being alive to be able to do this work, but families being able to continue to be together so that we can thrive to do this work and also create children who in the end can do the same. Yeah. I mean, you've said so many times throughout this conversation how much of you stepping into this advocacy work, wanting to be a change maker, is really being driven from your daughter, Cameron. And when you think about your legacy as, you know, as an athlete, as a founder, as a mom, as an advocate, what do you want Cameron to be most proud of? I guess I really want her to be most proud of the impact I've tried to have and the change that I've been trying to create. So I guess in her world, just that I've tried to do things to leave the world better for women. I hope that she sees that. And yeah, I think one day she'll be proud of it. (laughs) I have a feeling she already is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I love it. We love to ask a few questions as closers here. And one of our favorite questions, I'm sure you've received lots of unsolicited advice as you have begun your company, (laughs) but we always love to get the answer to what is the best and worst piece of business advice that you've ever received? I would say the best is that there's not one way to do something. You know, when you're building something, there's a lot of different ways to get to the end goal. And I think that's been really reassuring and encouraging because, you know, you're doing something that's not traditional and there's kind of no blueprint for it. So understanding that there's going to be different ways about it for sure. What about the worst? (laughs) (laughs) The worst. I'm like, what is the worst advice? I would say, I didn't even know, it wasn't really advice, but it was a comment that was made kind of early on with the idea of our company. And I think we were probably in a pitch meeting where this came out and the response was like, do you think the market is big enough? I was like, you mean women? Like, (laughs) you mean like half of the population? Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) being questioned. Generally all need footwear? Yeah. I think it's a pretty big pot that we're working with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just want to say thank you for taking the time and joining us and having this conversation. 
you are such an inspiration to so many people in both what you have been able to do in sport, what you're now doing in business, and the advocacy that has been a common theme throughout. And I just want to both thank you for joining this podcast, but thank you for doing all that you do. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say that I just appreciate who you are, what you have built, what you continue to build. You're an inspiration to me, and you've been really transparent and helpful, and I'm very grateful for you. That was Allison Felix, co-founder and president of Seish, the athletic footwear brand designed for and by women. So Lindsay, as a mom, how much did her birth story resonate with you? That story was horrifying. Listening to her delivery story and what happened to Tori took me right back to the delivery room. And I don't know if you know this, Carolyn, but one of the reasons my kids are four years apart is because I felt traumatized by my own delivery experience, my postpartum experience. So I think I had an actual best case scenario health-wise, and it was still incredibly difficult. So I can't imagine the horror and tragedy of being a subject of bias while in the most vulnerable moment of your life. It's so inspiring to me to also hear about her talk about having her daughter, Cameron, and how that just changed her entire mindset and pushed her from being a people pleaser, to becoming a fierce advocate going against the likes of a behemoth like Nike. That's not a small fight, (laughs) but it's a fight for a better world. And I know I'm not a world champion like Allison. Don't laugh, Lindsay. Stop. (laughs) She's not a world champion yet. (laughs) Someday. But I do know as a former athlete myself, that it does take just relentless, dogged determination and work ethic to compete and win, even in the small stage that I was in, let alone the world stage that she was on over and over again. And you can see how much she carried that through, that same work ethic into building her business, Seish. Yeah, you and I know how deeply challenging it can be to do right by your employees and build policies that reflect your values. And I love that, like us, she's created parental leave that addresses mental health and includes hybrid ramp-up periods. That actually reminds me of a quote from a previous guest, Reshma Sajani, the CEO and founder of Moms First. In order to build a workplace that works for everybody, we need to build for the most vulnerable people. The most vulnerable in a workforce right now is a woman of color, a single mom. She is the most vulnerable. So if you design for the most vulnerable, if I build a workplace that basically supports Black mothers, I will support everybody. And that's how we we have to think about how we design workplaces. We design them for the most vulnerable All right, I'm writing that down because I've heard it twice now and I need it to be stamped above my laptop. Seriously. Because when we design our workplaces, you know, the part of the world we have control over as business leaders for the most vulnerable, then we see not just more Black women in the C-suite, but everyone will rise. And that's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. Don't miss out on all of our chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following the new rules of business on your favorite podcast app. 
And if you want to learn more about Chief, head to chief.com. Chief is the most powerful community for senior executive women designed to create meaningful connections with fellow executive leaders that will unlock transformative outcomes for your career. Thanks to Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, and Mesa Melton at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And I'm Carolyn Childers. Thanks for listening. I don't think there's a single sector that focuses on women that doesn't get that question of like, is the market big enough? It's like, when is that going to stop being a thing? I know. I know. (laughs) It's just, it feels almost lazy. (laughs) Yeah. And it it always tends to come from men. (laughs) 